This evening we are in session number six on our series of studies in the book of Ecclesiastes entitled Living Life Backwards. And we are in chapter six of this book. So far we have looked at you know, Solomon's uh, evaluation of life and especially in the last chapter we also looked at you know, his frustration if he was focusing on living for money and riches. And in this particular chapter he continues on in his observations and comes up you know, with uh, an understanding of how we should really be viewing life. There are two aspects you know, to uh, how we can view it. We can view it either from a positive manner or we can view it from a negative manner. Because situations in life are common to all people. So in this chapter, we will learn some important lessons of uh, uh, how money does not really bring us happiness, you know, but it is how we deal with whatever happens in life, with whatever circumstances are around us, you know, good or bad, how we react to this is what good life is all about, okay? Now, if you notice, there's a search in this world. Everyone who's born into this world is searching for good, searching for something that will satisfy, searching for something that will fill up, if you were to say, the emptiness in his or her life. They did a research work in UK on the amount of time that people <laughs> were to use their uh, remotes to search for channels you know, that they would want to watch. You know. In other words, they did a survey on how much time people spend on switching channels to finally zero in on a particular channel they want to watch. Now, why do people you know, switch channels? Because they're looking for something good, something that will attract them, something that will please them, something that will give them some fulfillment. And the interesting uh, result of that survey is that people in the UK spent 55 days of their lives doing nothing other than scrolling through television channels trying to find something to watch. In other words, if they put the amount of you know, hours that they spent and if an average person in an adult lifespan from 18 to 80 years, the amount of time that he would have spent just scrolling, you know, switching channels, you know, would have taken around 55 days of his life. And today, if you notice, it's not just the channels, it could also be scrolling social media. The time that you spend just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Now, the statistic for uh, U.S., was that the average American adult spends 45 hours each year trying to find something, okay? So this comes to 116 days, you know, of his life, okay? 116 days of his life. Nearly a third of a year of their lives was spent just in this. Now, I wonder if they had to do a survey for people in India you know, how much time they would spend. Oh, evaluate your own life this evening, you know. How much time do you spend just scrolling, trying to find something? Now, what does this really tell us? It tells us that as human beings, we are searching, we are looking for something good, you know. 
We are not searching for something bad. We are searching for something good, something that will really meet our needs, something that will you know, really satisfy. So, a couple of questions you know, that we need to ask ourselves, you know, which would uh, we will find answers in this particular chapter. Questions that we need to ask ourselves you know, for what we do. Number one, what kind of good are we looking for in this world? Okay. Are we looking for good? What kind of good? And what is the good that we are looking for in this life? What kind of good? And what is the good? You know, every man is searching. What is the good that you are looking for? Is it comfort? Is it pleasure? Is it satisfaction? What is the good that you are looking for? Secondly, why are we so desperate to find this good? And thirdly, how will we even know if we find that at all? Okay. Now, you must understand that the scripture is very clear. There is no one person that is good except God himself. So, if you are looking for relationships, good relationships that will give you that satisfaction, good material benefits that will give you that satisfaction. Now, the scripture is very clear. Now, evaluate what is the good that you are looking for. Like the rich man came and said, good master, and Jesus immediately turned around and asked him, why do you call me good? So, this evening the Lord will ask us, you know, what is the good that you are looking for? Any good that is apart from God is not really going to satisfy. You know, that's the conclusion that the preacher has been, giving, has been giving time and time again from his observations. And that is what he would also give us this evening. So let's look at the passage this evening and start off, first of all, from his personal observations. You know, and this observations have been consistent all along from chapter 1. Verse 1 tells us, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. There is an evil. Okay. He looks around and looks at all that he has personally experienced, and if he was writing a blog maybe of his everyday events, this is what he is writing. He says, there is an evil that is there in this world. Okay. Solomon is not sugarcoating anything, not looking through rose-tinted glasses, not making things up either, but facing reality square in the face and reporting what he sees around him. This is his sinna. He's saying basically, face reality, face reality. Okay. Now, you may look for good, but ultimately, there's only evil in this world. And the sooner we come to grips with this thought that this is the real world that we live in, there is nothing good in man. Now, goodness is found only in God. Then only we find true satisfaction. Sometimes as believers, we view the world as two you know, classes of people, believers and unbelievers. But here what uh, Solomon is trying to help us to understand is, okay, now, Bad things happen to believers as well. Good things happen to non-believers as well. It is your reaction, your attitude to what has happened in your life, you know, which will be really make the difference to uh, now find enjoyment in life, find satisfaction in life. So, in the first couple of verses, he's speaking about you know, looking at life from the a negative viewpoint, looking at life from a 
negative viewpoint. This could be a believer as well as an unbeliever, okay? But when things happen in his or her life, you can view life negatively. And what will be the response when a person views life negatively? The first thing is, you know, in verse 2 we find, here is a tragedy I've observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a man riches, wealth, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. So, he says, what's the point of making money? What's the point of making money? He first you know, draws a self-portrait, looks at his own life you know, and the riches that he has. You know, but he still says, in spite of all the riches that I have, I can't really enjoy the good life. The good life is very, very elusive. Remember the number of wives that he had, the number of concubines that he had, but still no satisfaction whatsoever, okay? So this is why he's frustrated and he's saying, you can make all the money that you, you know, need, but you still don't find any enjoyment. You know? Now, you can look at your financial situation with a tragic and a negative view. The reality is that money is like a river. It flows in and it flows out. And instead of complaining that the river is leaving you, one should be happy that the river comes to you in the first place, okay? But for a rich person, you know, for a money who, for a person who has the riches, you know, he doesn't see it from that perspective, isn't it? When he's not able to enjoy, when it leaves him, you know, then he's very upset. Think, for example, a businessman. Here he has you know, designed a new product, maybe, and he uh, gets another partner to help market it. But before long, this new partner takes over, you know, the whole company takes off the rights from him, you know, the invention, and he's the one who is making the money. He says, hey, what's the point, you know? Or a person toils for many years to build his business, and, you know, it is snatched, you know, from his hand when things are just beginning to you know, take shape, you know, he dies. What happens? What's the point? What's the point of slug, you know, slogging so hard? So he's saying, you know, look at the riches that you have. If you're not able to really enjoy them, what's the point? That's the question that he's asking. When you don't get to enjoy your possessions. And look at the statement he makes. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. Okay. Several years back, I was talking with an individual who had come from the Gulf, you know, plenty of money. But he was so upset that he had a very bad stomach, he couldn't really eat any good food. All that he had to eat was curd rice, you know. And he was saying, look, I have so much of money, but what can I do? You know, you are not getting able to enjoy your possessions or a stranger enjoys your possessions for a foreigner enjoys them what type of the foreigners are in view in this passage it could be national enemies that take the spoils of war like when the country goes to war you know all the riches that you have is just been taken over by the enemy or it has all has to be you know the market value collapses because of the war so you lose everything or it could be things out of control such as disease or a failing health. 
all the money that you had collected, you had raised, is now going and paying your medical bills. You are saying, what's the point? I can't enjoy that which I was looking forward for. Or it could be time commitments that, you, that don't allow you the freedom to enjoy the good life because you're just working and working and working to get more and more and more. You don't really have time to relax and enjoy what you are earning. Or it could be family conflicts that devour your peace of mind and your material estate. In other words, you can have the riches, but your family relationships may be in shambles. You, know? you may have a breakdown in your relationships, or there could be conflict in families because of the money. Oftentimes that also happens, isn't it? When there's more money that comes in, people are waiting to get that money, or they're waiting for the guy to die so that you know, it can be passed on to them. So this is the frustration of Solomon. When he's thinking into the future, all that he has gained, he says, what's the point, you know, if I'm not able to really enjoy them? So he says, what's the point of making money, okay? Then he says, what's the point when I can't enjoy what I have? In verse 3, you know, if you notice, verse 2 is contrasted against verse 3. Verse 3 is talking about a man who lives for a long time, okay? Verse you know, 2, if you are speaking about, here's a person who has the money, but maybe because of ill health or maybe because of a war, it's been taken away. But now he's saying, what about a guy who has lived for hundreds of years? You know, he lives a very long time, but he's still not able to enjoy it. Verse 4 says, for he comes in futility, he goes in darkness, his name is shrouded in darkness, though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if he lives a thousand years twice, but does not experience happiness, do not go down to the same place. He says, okay, here are possible factors. He has, you know, he has a large family, a family, okay? Maybe he also lives a long life. He lives many years. But the same problem it is, his soul is not satisfied. So whether a person has lived a short life and is not able to enjoy it because something happens and it's taken away, or a person has lived a long life but is still not really able to enjoy the long life. And to top it all, you know, he doesn't even get a decent burial, not even a proper burial. Why? Because his family was not in favor. The family maybe was just waiting for him to die and as a result they don't love him. You know? So when he died, you know, they were not really sorry. They were not mournful. They even had no grief. There was no lament whatsoever, you know. Maybe his relatives stayed around waiting for him to die just for his money, okay. Now, in those times, to die without mourners was considered worse than being born dead, okay. Even if one had many children and a full life. That is why in that culture, they used to have professional mourners, okay? Not just the relatives who are mourning because they said if they are not real mourners, it's a bad thing for the person who has died. So they used to have professional mourners just so that they would say hey, that's a decent burial because there were so many people who mourned. So he's looking at his situation and he's so frustrated. He comes to the point of saying it is worse state than non-existence. Or he's saying, I wish I was never really born. If I was not ever born, if I was a stillborn child, if I had, you know, if there had been a miscarriage, 
I would not be known by anybody. There won't be any name that was given because again in the Jewish culture, stillborn child, miscarriages were not given any names, okay? So he also says, you know, <clears throat> this sinner, unborn child would not see any of the suffering of this world, any of the injustices of this world. What a sad state for a person who is a king, who has everything and is evaluating his life and saying, I wish I was never born. Now, if you notice, a lot of people go through this frustration in life, isn't it? When things happen adversely, when things happen adversely, things they did not expect, things were going on well, suddenly everything collapsed. And an attitude would be, what's the point? What's the point? I wish I was never born. Now, a person who has God as his refuge can come to God for his strength. But a person who does not have God for his refuge, he says, what's the point? What's the point? I wish I was never born. And then he comes to the conclusion to say, look here, whether a person is rich, whether a person lives long, or whether a rich person you know, is still born, finally, it's the same destiny, isn't it? You know, he says, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. Okay? So he says the destination is common, you know, no matter how long it takes to go there. So he says, we know where we are all headed. So he says, let's get to that place with a minimum amount of suffering and frustration. Now, this is definitely the frustrating you know, uh, thoughts and voice of a person who has not only you know, thought through reality, but also has been so frustrated because he sees no hope. You know? He says, if it's going to end like that, you know, if everybody who's gone and born into this world is finally going to die, why go through the whole process of suffering? Why go through all the, the process of trying to find some purpose, find some satisfaction, when at the end of it all, there's no good. You are all going to die. What's the point? You know, I might as well not have been born at all. Okay? <laughs> so the person in these verses, like Solomon, seems to have everything. Not only was he worth a fortune, but he would also have been famous, which many people value even more highly than money. Yet for some unspecified reason, he was not able to enjoy what he had. You know? Martin Luther called these verses a description of a rich man who lacks nothing for a good and happy life, yet does not have one. He has everything for a good and happy life, yet he does not have one. Isn't this the sad uh, uh, situation even in the world today? A person may think, if I had more riches, if I only was a wealthy man, you know, then things would be different. But no, you know, a wealthy man is thinking, you know, like Solomon, you know, I wish I had nothing. I wish I was never born. When he looks at all the problems that is going through. So, there is... If there is nothing good to see in this world, you know, what hope do we have? You know, if God is not in our life, what hope do we have? And that's the hopelessness that the world is living in. And you and I have, who have a hope in Jesus, we have such an important message to give to this world who is living, who are living in desperation, who are wondering what good is there? especially when they go through hard times, they are saying, what's the point? 
or they are struggling to do good and, and somebody is you know, pushing them down all the time, injustice are rampant all the time. They are saying, what's the point? You, know, you and I have the message of hope that we can definitely give to this needy world. Okay? In January 2016, a 10-year, $100 million project was launched. It is called Breakthrough Listen. Breakthrough Listen is in a, uh, to dedicate an extraordinary amount of scientific and technological resources of just trying to listen to outer space, trying to maybe hear if intelligent life in the outer space is trying to communicate with us purposefully, or whether we just overhear chatter to try and find some evidence of life out there somewhere in the universe. Imagine, you know, a um, hundred million dollar project was put in to find out, is there life in a, outside this planet? Now, one of the biggest proponents for bringing this project about was the late, late astrophysicist Stephen Hawking. And this is what he said. He said, in an infinite universe, there must be other life. Then he says this, there is no bigger question. There is no bigger question about whether there is other life. You know, in other words, he's saying, you know, there must be life. That it is certain that there is life in this other planet. Now, now obviously, he didn't really find any life in others. You know, he died in 2018. But think for a moment, you know, he says, this is the biggest question, you know. Is there life in this other planet? Now, why is he asking that question? He's basically asking that question because when he looks at this life, you know, this earth, you know, people are talking about this earth is not going to last long, different things are happening, it's going to end, you know, all the problems that are in this world. So he's recognizing that there's no lasting, satisfying good in this world. So the desire to look for life elsewhere. But why should you have really looked for life? Do you look for life in another planet or do you look for life you know, in the one who has given us life? Finding God would have been the answer to the greatest question that he has. And that's what the world is doing, isn't it? They think knowledge. By knowledge, we will find meaning and purpose in living. You spend multi-million dollars in a we're trying to find out where is life all over the world, you know, all on the other planets rather. You know. Instead of finding life you know, in the one who has come to give us life. Okay? And this is what drove Stephen Hawking. Even though he wouldn't go to God to look for this biggest question in his mind to try and find extraterrestrial intelligent life. And that's what the writer, the preacher, is saying. This is a bitter conclusion that he is coming to. There's nothing good in this life. So what? Do you look for life somewhere else? Or do you look for life in the one who is able to give us life? Then in verses 7 and 8, he speaks about what's the point when I have to work too much, you know, you know, when I have to work too much, you know, it's a hard night's work, you know, it's constant joy, you know, uh, laboring, 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 you know. We are working so much. What's the point of working? That's the question that he seems to be asking now in verses 7 and 8. He says, all man's labor 
is for his stomach. Yet, the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage then does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? So he's saying man is a bottomless pit. Nothing can fill him or satisfy. He labors hard, he eats, but still there is emptiness. All a man's labor is for his mouth, yet the appetite is not satisfied. The term that is translated appetite in a, is the Hebrew word nefesh, and it is the term often used for soul in the Old Testament passage. So what he's saying is, you know, the stomach is satisfied maybe, but the soul is not satisfied. So he's saying work doesn't bring satisfaction to an empty life. You know, we speak about job satisfaction. We speak about satisfaction in life. We speak about meaning and purpose in living. So the preacher is saying here, okay, I'm working hard so that I get some satisfaction. But all the work that I'm doing is only for my stomach. It's not really satisfying my innermost being. You know? So what he's saying is all man's labor is for his stomach, yet the soul is never satisfied. The hunger that burns deep within cannot be satisfied merely by food. It can only be satisfied by Jesus. Now, work would have some value if it could bring satisfaction. But the conclusion here is for him, there's no advantage. Whether it's a rich person or whether it's a poor person, you know, there is no satisfaction. There's no difference between a wise man and a fool. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? Both of them work, but then still they are not satisfied. What's the difference between a rich man or a poor man? What advantage does a poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? So this is whether it's a rich or a poor, whether it's a wise or a fool, work doesn't really satisfy. Now, if in case as a student, you said, I'm looking for a job. Once I get a job, I will really be satisfied. I hope by now you have understood that work does not really satisfy. You know? The nine to five work doesn't satisfy. So a guy says, no, I'll set up my own business. I'll set up my own work. You know? And he immerses himself in that thinking that will give him satisfaction. No, work does not give him satisfaction. So, so that's the conclusion that the preacher is saying, reaching you, no matter how hard I work, whether I'm rich or poor, wise you know, or, or a fool, it doesn't work, doesn't really give satisfaction. So money doesn't give satisfaction. Work doesn't give satisfaction. I am frustrated with life, you know. Don't think about leaving this world and going somewhere else to another planet. There are people who are booking their seats for, you know, travel to other planets, thinking that that will give them satisfaction. That is not going to give satisfaction. There are some people who will say, if I relocate, you know, from this city to another city, that will give me satisfaction. No, that does not give you satisfaction. True satisfaction comes only when you and I look at life from the proper perspective, from the positive perspective. Okay, let's look at that from the next couple of verses. When the Jewish psychiatrist Viktor Frankl was arrested by the Nazis in World War II and put in the Auschwitz, the infamous death camp, he was stripped of everything, property, family, possessions, and also a manuscript that he had spent years researching and writing on finding meaning in life. And this manuscript had been sewn into the lining of his coat. Okay? 
Now, what happened was, you know, when he was there, put in this death camp, you know, this is what he wrote. He says, now it seemed as if nothing and no one would survive me, neither a physical nor a spiritual child of my own. I found myself confronted with the question of whether under such circumstances my life was ultimately void of any meaning. So here's a guy who wrote a research paper on finding meaning in life. Now he's put in this death camp and he's wondering, is there any meaning to life at all? And a few days later, the Nazis forced the prisoners to give up what little clothing they still wore. And then he writes, I had to surrender my clothes and in turn inherited the worn out rags of an inmate who had been sent to the gas chamber. And instead of the many pages of my manuscript, I found in the pocket of the newly acquired coat a single page torn out of a Hebrew prayer book, which contained the Jewish prayer Shema, which said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he writes, How should I have interpreted such a coincidence other than as a challenge to live my thoughts instead of merely putting them on paper? And Franklin, and Franklin later on reflected on his ordeal in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, saying, There is nothing in the world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is meaning in one's life. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Let me say that again. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. That is the conclusion that the preacher is trying to get across to us even this evening. And the question we must ask ourselves, have you found the why to live for? Are you living for somebody? Are you living for a relationship? Are you living you know, for you know, money, your job, your popularity? What's the reason why you are living for? If that reason is not God, then when those things are taken away from you, you would collapse. You know? True meaning in life is found only in a relationship with God. So in verse 9, he says, he comes to the conclusion and says, you know, I must learn to be content. Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. Better what the eye sees than wandering desire. Okay, this is his version, if you were to say, of the famous seeing a bird in the hand is what two in the bush. You know? What I have is better to hold on to rather than dreaming about what I don't have. Solomon is saying it's better to have little and really enjoy it than to dream about much and never attaining it. Remember, dreams have a way of becoming nightmares if we don't come to grips with reality. Dreams have a way of becoming nightmares if we don't come to grips with reality. You know, we may have a dream, I want this, I want that. It doesn't become a reality. God is not there in, your, in, a, in the whole equation. And then you get frustrated and you get so upset. You know, and you can come to the same conclusion that Solomon had earlier. What's the point of living? I wish I was never born. 
Some people go through life with that constant grasping, covetous inner spirit, imagining always that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. They're always thinking of jumping to the next job. It must be better than what I have here. You know, it must be better than the people I have here. But then they take the next job, they find you know, things may not necessarily be any different. So a person who says, if only I could have that X, whatever it is, then I would find satisfaction. Solomon is saying, no, no, that's not the idea. We learn to be content because you know, if we are not content, it will be futility and striving after the wind. Now, Solomon is not telling us it's wrong to dream great dreams or having a burning ambition to accomplish something in life. But what he's really saying here is our ambition must be motivated for the glory of God and not the praise of men. We must want to serve others and not to promote ourselves. You know? If we think our achievements will automatically bring satisfaction, we are wrong. True satisfaction comes when we do the will of God from the heart. Ask yourself, you know, whatever you have achieved, has that got you satisfaction, you know? Or you thought it would give you, but still, there's still that emptiness. Why? Because God is not in the equation. C.S. Lewis put it across this way when he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Once we come to that conclusion that nothing in this world that can satisfy, then our eyes are opened up to realize, hey, there is you know, another world, you know, there is another reality. Not to go to Mars or things like that, but to have the reality of a conscious relationship with God. We have been created for eternity. And once we understand that, and respond in a relationship, then we are really able to enjoy life. Contentment then is the key. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul writing says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Remember when Paul was writing this in an epistle to the Philippians, he was under house arrest. And under house arrest, he's saying, I've learned to be content. And the Greek word that is used here for content carries the idea of self-contained, advocate, needing nothing from the outside. He's saying internally, I'm quite content. I'm quite happy being chained to two Roman guards. I'm quite content being in this in a house arrest because God is the one who is in charge. I'm not frustrated with life. I know God is working all things for his good now. So the good that we are seeking is not in this world. God, the good that we are seeking can be found only in a relationship with God. And as a result, learn to be content with what God has given. Don't be frustrated with what you don't have. Don't be always in a envying and looking at what the other person has, but learn to be content and enjoy the life that God has given you. <laughs> Secondly, he says, I can live to the best of my potential. I can live to the best of my potential. Whatever exists was given its name long ago, and it is known what man is. But he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. The best of our potential is only in a, 
understood when we have the relationship with God. Innately, man does not have the full potential to achieve what God has in store for him. But oftentimes we are living in this world which are constantly bombarding our minds, isn't it? You know? Dream big, you have it, you can do it, you, know? you have the potential, push yourself up. God is nowhere in the picture. That is not going to satisfy. Somewhere along the line, you know, you know, the bubble is going to burst and you will find what's the point. You know? But if God is in the picture, if you have the why, the reason for living, if God is there in your relationship, then you will find that you are able to function to the best, fullest of your potential. So in this, we find the finality of the sovereignty of God. So he's saying, I can get to the best of my potential when I know that it is not the injustices of this world. It's not the adverse situations of this world. I know that God is the one who is sovereign. Since our course has been determined by God, we get to our full potential, you know, thinking about the future that God is going to accomplish it through us. The scripture tells us that we have been saved for good works, which God has planned for us. Okay? Even before we were born again, even before we were born, God has planned these things for us. That's the full potential that God has in store for us. But that full potential can be reached not when we are trying to reach up to the top, not when we are trying to climb up the ladder, but when we are able to be in a relationship with God and find that full potential which God has created us for. Remember, man is unable to control his own destiny because his destiny has been determined by God. Secondly, <laughs> the frustration since God is the one who is more powerful than man, so don't think about you know, any debate with God. Don't think of any arguments with God. You know? The scripture tells us over here, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. Okay? For there are many words which increase futility. Okay? In other words, he's saying, God is sovereign. So don't pour out all your frustrations before him and then you know, question God and say, God, why did you have this injustice? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Now, remember, if God is sovereign, he knows what is the best for you. He knows you know, the potential that he has created you for. He knows the plans that he has for you. And he is the one who is going to fulfill it. So don't get into debates. Don't get into arguments. Don't get into fights with God as it were. Because disputing is a waste of time and effort. Trust God because God is the one who is sovereign. <laughs> okay. Since and then he says, if we don't do this, you know, if God is not in the picture, then the question would be, what's the point? What's the point? But if on the other hand, when adverse situations happen, instead of arguing, instead of debating, instead of being upset, you know, you know, you turn to God and say, God, you're sovereign. You're the one who is in charge. I know everything is happening according to your perfect plan. That is that satisfaction. Otherwise, there will be the pointlessness of life under the sun, where he says, what then is the advantage to man? Now think for a moment, going back into the book of Genesis, where Adam gave names to all the animals. That's what the scripture tells us, isn't it? <laughs> to name something in the Old Testament is to recapture something of its essence. Okay, So, Adam was able to recapture the essence of those animals 
and gave them those names, you know. Today, a zoologist starts from the names, you know, but, you know, Adam started from the essence. So, if you really look at it, Adam was a very, very knowledgeable person, okay. He had all the knowledge to do that, okay. But we know that in spite of all the knowledge that he had, he set aside God's word. God gave him wisdom that would have given him true happiness, but he set aside God's word and instead trusted an animal, a serpent, to undermine God's word. Remember, it's the whole area of goodness over here as well, okay? When the serpent comes and says, did God really say, if you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened, then you will know what is good, you know? Now, God had already told them what is good and what is bad. Eating of the fruit is bad. You know, eating of all the other fruits in the garden was good. But the serpent, serpent came and said, look, and then your eyes will be open and you would find good. So man is still searching for that sense. I want to find that good. You know? But in spite of all the knowledge that he had, he missed out because he stepped out of that relationship with God. If only he had turned around and says, no, I already know because God has given the insight and I have a relationship with him. I'm going to trust God rather than this situation. Things would have been different. So it's not the money that can give us satisfaction. It's not even the high learning that can give you satisfaction. A person can be the most learned person in this world, being able to give answers to every question, but still, if they don't have a relationship with God, all that learning is useless, okay? Thirdly, he says in verse 11, for when there are many words, they increase futility, you know? What is the advantage for man? So he says, I can stop trying to determine my own destiny, okay? I learn to be content. I also make sure that uh, I recognize this truth that... Uh, my full potential can be achieved only in a relationship with the sovereign God, you know. So as a result, you know, I stop trying to determine my own destiny. The more words, the more vanity, what's the advantage, you know. If you notice, you know, when Adam sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, you know, what happened? They tried to argue with God, isn't it, you know. When God came... They were supposed to have that daily walk, as it were, you know, but they were hiding. Why are you hiding, you know? They came up with all the other, you know, answers, as it were, trying to, you know, pull the wool over the Lord's eyes. Now, you can't do that, isn't it? You can't, you know, you know outwit God, as it were. So, here he's saying, don't try to create your own destiny by doing what you think is right, okay? Do not think of that. I am the master of my destiny, you know. If you notice Adam and Eve, they saw it was good, pleasing to the eyes, good for, you know, eating, and so they gave in. So oftentimes when we think of our destiny, we look at something which seems good to us. Maybe it's a nice package. Maybe it's a nice relationship, you know. Maybe it's very glamorous. It seems good to us, and they say, this is my destiny. No, 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 <laughs> Don't try to create your own destiny, you know. Our potential is only that which God has created for us before we were born. And in our relationship with him, he is able to give us that life, okay. So, fourthly, 
we can make the most of each day as God pleased it because we don't know the future. So this is the conclusion that we can have. Verse 12 tells us, for who knows what is good for man in life? In the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow, who can tell man what will happen after him under the sun? Like Adam and Eve in the garden, what we think will give us the knowledge of good and evil only ends up bringing us more misery and heartache. So don't create your own destiny. Trust God for what he has already planned for you. <laughs> so in this verse, he has you know, three who knows, as it were, of the futility of trying to understand your lot in life. The first who knows is who knows what is best, you know, where he says, for who knows what is good for a man doing during his lifetime? Do you know what is best for your life? No, none of us knows what is best for our, for our life. We may think we know what is best. We think we control our destinies. But the real answer is the rhetoric answer. No, we cannot know apart from God. But God knows what is best for our life. Secondly, who knows whether you will be around tomorrow. During the few years of his futile life, he will spend them like a shadow. You, know, you may plan for the future, but are you sure about the future? How long you would live? Are you sure about tomorrow? Are you sure about the next breath that you have? No, you don't have. So how can we say we are creating our destiny? We are, we are the ones who are working it through. No, no, God is the one who has the future in our hands. So learn to trust in him. <clears throat> the third who knows, who knows what the future holds? For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? You know? Who knows what will happen in the future for you? Who knows what will happen in the future after you die? Do you have any idea at all? Not at all. Not at all. So as a result, you know, if you don't know all these uh, answers, but you do have an answer in a relationship with God, knowing God gives you the assurance. You know, when we can say with confidence, I may not know about the future, but I know who holds the future. And if our lives are safe in the hands of God who knows the future, that is what true satisfaction, true meaning, and true purpose in life is all about. George Orwell, in his amazing story, 1984, writes, Who controls the past controls the future, and who controls the present controls the past. So it is evident that man has been unable to exercise any control over his destiny. Yet he persistently seeks to discover what the future holds. And lost in the shadow of his own ignorance, he hangs, hangs on to the words of anyone who claims prophetic vision. Presidents have turned to astrologers and numerologists. Hard-bitten businessmen have made decisions on the turn of a tarot card, all in the vain attempt to crack the code that will unlock tomorrow. Okay, But the preacher will say, What's the point, you know? What's the point? Who can tell man what will happen, happen to him? Consulting all these you know, numerologists, consulting all these astrologers about the future, is it going to help in any way? No, they don't know. Only God knows. So what is really important is to make sure that our life is secure in the trust in God, who alone is good, who alone is able to satisfy our innermost longing, who alone is able to help us to function to our truest,
total potential. So this evening we need to ask ourselves, you know, how is our relationship with God? Have you over the period of time, because of all that has happened in our lives, somehow begun to think like the world, to say, if I have this, then I'll have satisfaction? Or have you been trying to create your own destiny, your own dreams for the future, and found that maybe right now you think you are happy, but as the scripture says, who knows about the future? Before the bubble bursts, recognize all your plans without God, without God in the planning, is useless, because God is the one who has the best potential that can be unleashed in your life, if only you would have the right relationship with him. Couple of application questions this evening before we close. Number one, where have you been able to exercise self-control with respect to your appetites so that you can practice contentment? Number two, where are you striving after something you don't have rather than enjoying in the present what God has already given you. Number three, what advantages do people richer than you are actually have? And why do you think many people don't enjoy the riches they work so hard to get? Number four, don't regret the past or be scared of the future. Just live and enjoy today. Do you agree or disagree with that philosophy? Why? How does faith in God help us with our unanswered questions? And does faith in God mean never questioning him? Number seven, suffering sometimes makes people cynical about God's will because God has allowed a tragedy to happen. Have you or anyone you know ever faced a tragedy? If so, how did that affect you or your friend? What was helpful in that situation? Number eight, where do you argue with God about how he is directing your life rather than submitting to his control and acknowledging that he knows what is best for your future? And finally, number nine. If a non-Christian asked you the two questions in Ecclesiastes 6, verse 12, what will be your answer? Let's bow our heads in prayer together.